welcome to The Play Readers, a podcast where we discuss unusual or infrequently produced plays. I'm your co-host, Andrea. And I'm Nick. And we are The Play Readers. I'm going to start today's episode off a little bit differently with a little bit of a puzzle, if you will. What do the TV series Futurama, the TV series Dollhouse, and the 2013 film The World's End all have in common? Well, they all reference today's play, which is R.U.R. by Carl Chopik, first performed in 1921. Bingo! The specific references uh, for Futurama, the Planet Express crew goes to the robot planet Chopik 9 in the first season, which is clearly a reference to the playwright. Uh, In the Joss Whedon series Dollhouse, the corporation through which, you know, the entire series revolves, is called the Rossum Corporation, which is the same corporation in RUR. And then The World's End actually makes uh, quite a bit of deal about the fact that the word robot comes to the English language from the Czech language, specifically from this play. That's true. Yep. Uh, And you've got a little bit more information about that, don't you? Yes, the etymological origins of the word robot come from this play. It was uh, the, a term first coined by Joseph Chopik, which would be Carl Chopik's brother. They they wrote together quite a lot, mm-hmm. a number of uh, projects together. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit more about Carl Chopik himself? He had a little bit of a history, didn't he? Yeah, uh, Carl Chopik, he was a Czech playwright. He was also a political writer in his time. Uh, I think a lot of his politics probably come through with RUR as well, although these are politics from the 1920s in Czechoslovakia. The playwright's history, a lot of what he did was either fantasy or something a little unusual in some way, shape, or form. I've read four of his plays, Mm -hmm. including R.U.R. They include the Macropolis case, which was a little bit about immortality. Mm -hmm. The insect play, which he also credits his his brother as a co-writer. That was a, it's sort of a fantasy about microscopic well, insects, basically, okay. uh, interacting with each other. And then I have another one of his plays, which is a little bit later in his career. This is from 1937. It was called The White Plague. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to be a criticism of the Third Reich, the rising of, of uh, Adolf Hitler in that time, too. Okay. And that deals with a disease that's going around and wiping people out. Right. And uh, Chopik had other influences further on just beyond this play. Isn't that right? Well, yeah. He influenced... Probably the best-known person that he influenced would have been Václav Havel, Mm -hmm. who for a time was the president of the Czech Republic and was a playwright in his own right. Yeah. Uh, Kind of a strange playwright, but he was heavily influenced by by the works of Karl Chopik. All right. That's very cool. Um, So what about RUR's history? Um, You know, when was this first produced? Well, it was first published in 1920. Mm Mm-hmm presumably written that year as well. It was first produced in Prague in 1921, January 25th, 1921, and it was picked up almost immediately as this brand new thing. It was very popular in its time. It was very popular. Mm -hmm. Uh, The concept of the robot was brand new to people. I think that it was the concept of the robot that really gave this play its legs. Oh, absolutely. It was translated into English and first performed... According to the Wikipedia page, it was first performed in 1922 in the United States, likely New York. But I, the only information I was able to get is the very first translation in English, which was by Paul Selver and Nigel Playfair, mm-hmm. which was published in 1923 and performed in London. 
Okay. And presumably the American production used the same translation. I don't know. I haven't been able to find any other translations from that era. Sure. There are a couple of different translations available of this play. Um, I know I read one that was much more recent. I want to say from 2010. Yeah, it's there was the 1923 edition of the play, which was, again, Selver and Playfair. It was abridged in the sense that there was a character cut out. It wasn't, a, it wasn't really a big cut. Mm-hmm. And then in 1989, someone by the name of Claudio Novak Jones published an unabridged English translation with Penguin Books. Mm-hmm. I have another unabridged version from 1999. It's from Peter Major and Kathy Porter. Uh, that's the one with the other plays that I've, of his that I read. Okay. And then the one, the version that you read was from 2010 by David Wiley. Sure. And that was released on the internet as a freebie. I want to say that we found that on goodreads.com back in 2011, 2012. Oh, okay. That does feel about right for when I read it. So uh, that's very cool. Yeah, there's, that's four, four translations in, altogether. Mm-hmm. I personally read three of them. And if there are other English translations out there, I have not been able to find them. Okay. Well, I think reading three different translations of a single play is pretty good coverage on something like that. So let's get a little bit more into the play itself. Let's just start with uh, what does the cast look like? Well, it's a fairly good-sized cast, uh, unlike some of the other plays that we've talked about where there's only been a handful or a lot of doubling up of roles. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got human characters and you've got robot characters. And although they don't overlap much, it would be, I think, very difficult to really double cast stuff. Mm -hmm. I figure the cast for this is probably going to be about 13 people minimum. Right. Maybe 15 if you want to pad out your robot numbers a little bit more. Which you could absolutely do very easily. Yeah, and of course it depends on what sort of resources you have available to you if you Mm -hmm. wanted to produce this play. The specific characters of the play are Harry Dahman, who is the managing director of RUR. There is Helena Glory, who is sort of the the female lead here, and she's the daughter of another big guy in business, another general director or managing managing director somewhere out there. Uh, There's another woman who plays Helena's nurse in a couple of scenes. Mm -hmm. And then there's the five guys. (laughs) which are Fabry, Dr. Gall, Dr. Hallemeyer, Consul Busman, and Alquist. And they all have their own little areas of expertise at Rossum's Universal Robots. And then there are the robots. Right. And the named robots include Marius, Radius, in all but the first translation, Damon, Primus, and Sulla. And there's also a robot, Helena. So whomever ends up playing Helena will also be required to play the robot Helena. Likely the only doubling up that would happen within this script, um, you know, barring a specific need within your production to do something like that. So one of the challenges that I can foresee in staging this production would be finding a good way to differentiate between uh, the human characters and the robot characters. Um, I'm kind of thinking, obvious, I'm kind of thinking that's going to be somewhere in your costume and makeup design. And I know you and I had kind of spitballed a couple of ideas, but uh, what are the challenges that you foresee there? Challenges or opportunities that you foresee there? Well, I think probably one of the most appealing things about this play are the fact that we're talking about robots for the first time in history, Mm -hmm. which is to say they look like human beings, 
they are indistinguishable from human beings outside of their behavior and the way they dress. Okay. And it's implied that the robots are, at least a lot of the robots, all kind of look the same, too. Right. And I'm not sure if you would want to employ the use of a maybe a partial mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that it's an interesting design opportunity because this is retrofuturism. Yeah. You're looking at what somebody in 1920 thought of the later 20th century would look like. Mm-hmm. And from what I've seen of the original costume designs, it looks a bit like the robots were heavily influenced by Art Deco. Okay. Which would have been very popular mm-hmm. during the, the early 1920s. Mm-hmm. And I think that taking a look at that and, I mean, there's all kinds of, they, they're punk offshoots, right? Steampunk and cyberpunk and diesel punk. Sure. And deco punk. So that's kind of what you'd be looking at for the design on this. And I think it could be really interesting from the standpoint of a costume designer or a property master or a set designer. Yeah, you could probably have a lot of fun with, you know, those kinds of ideas and just play around in that kind of a space. Speaking of set designing, let's talk a little bit about the set requirements. The set, this, there are four acts. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the translation, the way they divide them up. In one translation, it's, an, it's a prologue with three acts after that. In another, it's three acts and then an epilogue. And in still others, it's just four acts. Mm-hmm. The first act takes place in the central office of Rossum's Universal Robots, which is Harry Dahman's office. Mm-hmm. The second act takes place, the second and third acts both take place in Lady Helena's drawing room. Right. And then the final act takes place in the laboratory. Yes. Where they uh, can do experiments on robots and whatnot. So one of the additional challenges here, in addition to just coming up with interesting design elements, is the fact that you've got some pretty big scene changes happening, basically in between most of the major scenes. Assuming that you divide it up as putting your intermission in between three, between Act 2 and Act 3, mm-hmm. you would be looking at a major scene change between the first act and the second act, wherein they have to jump forward 10 years and then they go from the office to the drawing room. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have an intermission where the, the only real changes to the set need to be that it's fortified. Yeah. And then the final scene, which would then be between three and four, there would be another scene change and you'd be in the laboratory. Right. So there are some, I mean, depending on how you stage it and what you end up doing for your set design, you could really minimalize this a bit. Or if you have access to a fly system, yeah, I suppose you could you could have a set that goes up and down. Mm-hmm. Probably need to just get really creative as to how you might handle these types of things. So a little bit of a heads up there. We've talked a little bit about the individual scenes, but let's get into the actual plot itself. You said that it opens up in Harry Dolman's office, right? Yeah, Dolman or Dolman. Honestly, I'm not sure how to pronounce some of these names. Sure. Uh, I think in in at least one translation out there, his name is translated as Domain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most of these translations, it's it's Dolman or Dolman. I just say Dolman. Mm-hmm. It opens in his office. And most of the first little bit is just him dictating letters to customers and clients through his secretary, Sulla, Mm -hmm. who is a robot. 
Or actually, in some translations, they, they came up with the word robotess. Oh. To signify a, a woman robot. Mm-hmm. And she basically just works as a secretary for him. And then Helena Glory, or in some translations, Helen Glory, mm-hmm. enters. And Helen Glory, she comes in veiled. Uh, she is the daughter of another big corporate head. Mm-hmm. And she's there on a mission to try and save the robots. Yeah. She sees robots as being inherently human. Mm-hmm. And she, at one point, reveals her face. She takes the veil off and reveals her face. And Harry Domin falls in love with her. Mm-hmm. Although it's not a, it's not completely apparent right away. No. Uh, we do find out later on that the minute she takes off her veil, he's just fallen completely in love with her because she's so good looking. Yeah. Right? It's a weird aspect to this scene. Yeah. In one, I did read something that suggested that he saw, that Chopek saw this opening scene as comedic. Mm-hmm. It was it, it was meant to be kind of a, a farcical scene. That's maybe in large part because most of this opening scene is exposition. Yeah. And there's not really a lot I can say about the plot because it's really mostly Damon explaining the history of Rossum's Universal Robots to Helena. And a little bit about the nature of the robots themselves, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, some of the ideas that came into it, some of the keynotes here. Mm-hmm. The original robots were created by old Rossum mm-hmm. in 1920. So we're assuming generations have passed before this opening scene. So this is like 1970, 1980. Yeah. Old Rossum, he finds this stuff on this island where the factory exists and he figured out that he could make living things out of it and experimented with it. And there's there's a whole lot of, you know, he, a lot of trial and error that went into it. He was an anti-theist, mm-hmm. as in he wanted to prove that God was completely unnecessary. He, I, they called him an atheist, but really he was, he was very aggressively against God mm-hmm. uh, in what he was doing because he wanted to create an actual man. Right. Whereas young Rossum basically thought of it as something else you know he was he was an engineer so he thought of it as an engineer so he made something more efficient than Mm -hmm. man and that's where the robot came into play where he figured out uh the internal organs and the certain the drives that they had and their understanding of the world were all simplified Mm -hmm. in order to make them more efficient laborers right and young rossum was old rossum's son presumably yeah. Got it. So that's what we find out about these robots. They, And then we also find out they have no soul. They are sort of designed to be obsolete or fall apart after about 10 or about 20 years. Right. Uh, they're, they're sort of, if you've ever seen Blade Runner, they're maybe a little bit like the, the replicants or whatever they're called. From sure. Blade, from Blade Runner. Yeah. They can't create anything on their own. They don't have any new ideas. There's a lot of stuff like that going on. Yeah, and at one point in this opening scene, we get a we get another robot. They bring in Marius, who is a man robot, and they sort of, Domin sort of demonstrates that they aren't real people. They are just machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helena has a great deal of trouble understanding this. And then we come to find out that the robots run absolutely everything at the factory except for a handful of humans. And that's when the handful of humans come in. <laughs> and it's this is where it looks a lot more like a comedy because you've got four guys come in 
And then the fifth guy comes running in behind everybody else. Mm -hmm. And they all have their own purposes. They are Gall, Hallemeyer, Fabry, and Busman, Mm -hmm. and then Alquist, who's the working man. Mm Mm-hmm. They all come in and they all stumble over each other for Helena's attention. Because they've all fallen immediately in love with her, of course. Yeah, every single one of them. <laughs> Helena initially mistakes them from ro- for robots, tries to talk them into joining her cause. But yeah. then they, they sort of laugh and they make it clear and apparent that they're actually human beings. Mm-hmm. And then there's this weird little scene at the very end where Damon has fallen in love with Helena and he sort of demands her attention or her affections or her reciprocation of his desire for her. Yeah, it's it's a weird part in an already weird scene because the other men have all run out to make dinner because the robots can't cook. And he's like, you're not going to be able to leave. You have to marry me because if you don't, you'll have to marry one of these other men because they've all fallen in love with you. So we've all fallen in love with you. You have to marry one of us and you can't leave. It's so weird. And the others wait, just sort of wait. I think the only thing of note with these five guys Mm -hmm. is they do, they have Alquist there. Mm -hmm. And Alquist is, he's very humble. Yes. Compared to the others. He's just a builder. And Alquist becomes sort of an important character later on in the play. That's true. Act two starts up, and now it's ten years later. Mm -hmm. And at this point in time, Helena and Damon are married. Yeah. And this act takes place in Helena's drawing room. We're we're introduced to Nana, who is Helena's nursemaid, Mm -hmm. who is an older woman who is very religious and does not like the robots at all. Yeah. And there's this sort of ominous air. You get the idea that all the men are basically trying to keep something from the women. There is talk during this time of some of the robots, particularly one robot named Radius, who's starting to sort of rise up. Yeah. And being rebellious. And this is a concern for Helena especially uh, because she is getting the sense that this robot doesn't like humans. Mm-hmm. And... Over the course of this scene, she does actually, we get introduced to Radius, who is scheduled for being deconstructed, and they bring him in, and Helena decides to spare his life in the hopes that he will remember it later, or have more sympathy for humans, or just not hate them as much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Helena's motivations are sort of hard to follow at times. She's not an especially well-written character. Yeah, it seems like she just... Even 10 years later and after living on this island for that whole time, she still hasn't quite given up on this idea that robots are a lot more similar to humans than they actually are. And she's still, like, trying to free them in her own way. It's just, you know, not really taking. Yeah, and... Dr. Gall at one point enters, and, and Gall is the designer. He's the mm-hmm. one who, who has engineered the robots and, and understands how to produce them and that sort of thing. He's got the secrets, basically. And there's kind of a question at this point where does Radius have a soul in the same way humans do? Uh, and there's this weird thing going on that we find come to discover that Helena finds out, and that's that human beings have stopped having children. It's so weird. Yeah, and it's not real clear why. I, I think that maybe it's because robots are doing all the humans are doing, 
are supposed to do that maybe it's sort of a religious retribution that's happening? Yeah, there are a couple of ideas put forth the way from what I remember, but they don't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Yeah, again, it's it's 1920, mm-hmm. and I think that some of Chopek's personal politics are working way their way into this plot a little bit. Oh, of course. There's talk about the universities trying to stop the manufacture of robots. There's maybe some sus- some suspicion that the sterility is being caused by the robots. Yeah. In some way, shape, or form. Uh, but they point out that the shareholders for Rossum's Universal Robots aren't going to be happy with cutting down the production of robots, so it yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of looking more and more like humanity is doomed. Mm-hmm. And so Helena... I think in her wisdom, she thinks this is a great idea, but she comes across the formula for the robots, which is old, crumbly sheets of paper. Mm -hmm. There's a trope for that, where there's no backup, there's no copy, there's nothing at all. It's just, there's this original formula, and that's it. And that's the only way they know how to manufacture robots. And so Helena decides to burn it. Yeah. And so there's a there's a tech consideration that I hadn't thought of before, but you need right. to be able to burn something on stage. Yeah. Uh, I think that can be done with lighting effects. Oh, for sure. Without too much, of a, 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 too much difficulty as long as you mm-hmm. can, I don't know, come up with a, a fireplace or something. Yeah. yeah. And almost immediately, Damon and the five guys come in mm-hmm. after she burns this, and they're celebrating. Yes. Because we find out that... The robots' uprisings have been st- have been stopped, uh, and they basically their plan is that they're not going to have to worry about the robots getting them mm-hmm. because they have this formula. They have the only means of manufacturing robots in their possession. Yep, and since the robots can't create new they robots themselves, well, they can't they can't reproduce like yeah. humans do. So they would have to bow down to those remaining humans because they have the secret of life, basically. Yeah. And then Damon comes up with this interesting plan. He's sort of Tower of Babel is his idea. Yeah. Because we find out later on, of course, all the robots basically speak the regional language and mm-hmm. they're all more or less the same. Mm-hmm. They even refer later on to the sea of robots staring at them and they all look alike. Yeah. And it's very, very eerie and unnerving. And so his plan is to make robots who are of different colors uh-huh. and different languages in order to prevent any further uprisings. Yeah. He's, he's thinking that if they can't communicate or they see each other as different, they won't be able to band together and kill all the humans. They're just going to install a little old racism patch. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Or, uh, or I think it's, I think of it as more like a Tower of Babel situation. Sure. You know, then we have presumably the intermission, mm-hmm. and at this point in time, they're completely surrounded. They realize they're surrounded. Things are looking kind of dark. So then your audience is going to take their little intermission mm-hmm. and go out and and do whatever it is they want to do over their intermission. And they come back, and the set's changed in the sense that it's now a fortified location. Right. And honestly, I think that you could easily, if you had like maybe three points on the stage to put up furniture or or boards or something to indicate an attempt at yeah. least at barricading the remaining humans into this drawing room. And when we open, 
it's Fabry and Hallemeyer. They're laying down this electrical cable uh, as a sort of a barrier uh, to keep the robots from coming in. Busman, who's the accountant, he's going through the accounts because that's all he really knows. Yep. And then Alquist is sort of bemoaning the existence of the robots at all to mm-hmm. begin with because he's the working man. He's the religious man. Yep. He does not like the fact that there are these robots. Dr. Gall, at this point in time, reveals that he has been changing the robots in secret. Yes. And making them more like humans. Mm-hmm. Pretty much at Helena's behest. Yes. And she, well, her reasoning was that by making them more human, they wouldn't hate human beings. They would maybe have more empathy toward human beings. Mm-hmm. At least that's the motive as I understand it. Yeah, that's the way that I read it too. See, at this point, they uh, they found out, of course, that the, the formula's gone. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing they can do about that. And they're basically out of luck. At this point in time, Busman comes up with his plan. <laughs> Which is to take billions of dollars. And, yes. And to say, I think it was like a half billion dollars, which must have been cartoonishly high in Absolutely 1920. Absolutely bonkers. Our, our modern equivalent would be, I don't know, a quadrillion dollars. Yeah. A quintillion dollars. It must have just been a, a, a comically large amount of money that Busman goes out to try to negotiate with the robots. Yes. Who, of course, do not recognize the currency at all, but Busman's a bean counter and he doesn't quite get that. Yeah. And he ends up being the first human to get killed Mm -hmm. because he touches the electrical cable (laughs) that Fabry and Hallemeyer have laid down. And they turn it off, but it's, of course, it's too late and all the money burns up on the electrical cable. Mm-hmm. And then, the, of course, at the very end the, of the scene, the robots all storm in. Uh, there's a little bit of physicality because Hallemeyer is the final human on stage mm-hmm. and he gets stabbed by a robot that comes in. Yes. But this final scene is where the robots all kind of swarm in and they've killed all the humans. Mm-hmm. And they spare Alquist. Yes. Alquist is there as well, but they spare him because they think that he is one of them. Because sort of. He's, yeah, he's got the calloused working man's hands. Mm-hmm. And so they say he is like us. We will spare him. Yeah. Now he will work for us because he is a worker, which goes super well for them. Spoilers. And that leads us into the final scene. Yes. Which in some translations is an epilogue. Mm-hmm. And this takes place in the laboratory. So again, we got a scene change in here. Again, anything that makes it easier to get from one set to another, I think, would be helpful. Absolutely. Of course, you've got robots. I suppose you could have your robots kind of act as stagehands for this play. That might look kind of interesting. That's not a bad idea. Yeah, I don't mind that. Uh, Anyway, it is sometime later. We don't know exactly how long it's been, but we've got Alquist still alive and kicking. Mm -hmm. And he is the last human being on Earth. Yeah. They have found no other human beings because they killed all the humans. Yep. And the uh, robots, they come in and they try to, I mean, the the scene starts with Alquist monologuing. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, reminiscing and bemoaning and he knows humanity is doomed and it's very, very dark. And he's kind of wishing that he had been killed too. Yeah. 
he ends up in this this kind of bizarre negotiation with the robots because they want the secret of life and they think that he, as a human, should be able to provide that. But of course, Alquist is just a mason. Yeah. He has no idea about science, about engineering, about any of that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So he has no clue how to even begin developing these robots. And they offer him everything, and he's, he just he can't seem to get it through their thick skulls that he, mm -hmm. couldn't, he can't do anything about it. So they insist that he experiment on them. Yeah. And there's this scene where they take it in some of the unabridged versions. It's a character named Damon. Mm -hmm. I think in the uh, 1923 version, it was Radius again. Okay. That stood in here. But they take him backstage and then they scalpel him. <laughs> they cut him open and he screams and he screams and he screams and they finally get him out of here and and Alquist can't deal with it anymore and he's covered in blood. Yeah. And the uh, character is taken out by other robots and he's injured and he's talking about how it's better to live and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. Then we get two other robots who come in. Yes. They are Primus and Robot Helen. Mm -hmm. Or Robot Helena, depending mm -hmm. on the translation. She talks about, Robot Helena talks about how she's dreaming. Yeah. And they talk about the secret of life and they talk about their fate and what will become of them. Mm -hmm. And Alquist overhears this. Yeah. And he's starting to realize, I, I think the idea here is that Primus and Robot Helena are special robots that were designed by Dr. Gall. Right. To be different. So just how different is not real clear. Mm -hmm. But it becomes clear to Alquist that these two have fallen in love with each other, like they actually feel love for one another. Mm -hmm. And so he tests them. Yep. He threatens to dissect robot Helena and Primus objects, and then he threatens to dissect Primus and Helena objects. Mm -hmm. He starts to realize that they're because they're willing to die for each other, there's hope for the future. So he actually calls them Adam and Eve. Right. Mm -hmm and sends them off and says, do what you're going to do. Yeah. So I guess either either they're capable of sexual reproduction at this point in time or they've got a longer lifespan than 20 years. But there's kind of this hope that maybe through that love, they'll be able to start things over with these sort of advanced robots instead of humans. Yeah. But otherwise, it's a very, very bleak ending because all the humans got killed. Yep. And that's how it ends on that weird note. I think there are some things to be said about the script. I don't particularly feel like it is a very, very good one. Uh, I feel like it's definitely got some problems. And part of it is that, you know, there are some things that just are a little too open and a little too unspecified. You know, I don't, I don't mind a little bit of questions in, you know, my theater. But at the same time, this leaves us with stuff that just, doesn't really make sense, I feel. And I think that's one of the things that lets the script down. Yeah, I would say this is this was Chopik's first play. Mm -hmm. It is, to me, an historical curiosity. Absolutely. Partly because of the fact that it, that's where we first get the word robot. Mm -hmm. uh, but partly because it got legs in large part because it was this new idea. Yeah. And it wasn't so much because it was that great a script. 
Now, I would say in terms of production, I see no reason at all why community theater, professional theater, collegiate theater, Mm -hmm. I don't think it would be objectionable on any of those levels. Oh, for sure. There aren't any heavy adult themes. There's Mm -hmm. no language. It's nothing like that. It's just kind of weird. Yeah. It's a weird play, and a lot of community theater audiences especially probably would not be quite sure what to make of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Besides that, I would think that uh, collegiate theater, as far as I know, professional theaters do this every now and then. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly, I guess we wouldn't say this is an infrequently produced play. I think it does get produced here and there. But it is unusual. It is definitely an unusual play. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that for those of you listening, it's not so much one of those plays, because everything we've done up till now are are definitely producible plays. Yeah. This one is as well. It just, it's weird. Yeah. And so I'm not sure how many theaters are out there who are willing to do weird. Yeah. It's not going to be a great fit for everybody. It's probably not going to be a great fit for most companies, I, I would expect. Yeah. Uh, That said, though, if you feel like this is a play that's a good fit for you, uh, what does the rights situation look like? Well, the rights, at least for the original English translation from 1923, were held by Samuel French. And I checked, and Samuel French does still. It's probably a print-on-demand service, but they will sell you the scripts for RUR, near as I can tell. Mm -hmm. And it'll be that original 1923 version. That said, you can also get a copy of this entire script on Google Books. Yes. Because it appears to be in the public domain, Mm -hmm. at least at this point in time. And, of course, the original Czech version is also in the public domain. Yeah. So if you know somebody who speaks (laughs) both Czech and English and you're willing to pay a translator to do that for you, that would be another option. Yeah. Otherwise, there is the Penguin Books version uh, and there is the uh, Bloomsbury Publishing version slash Methuen Drama. Those are both unabridged in that they have Damon instead of Radius Mm -hmm. during that final scene. And I believe you could do either of those, but you'd be looking at probably contacting the the book publishers about that. Yeah. Which, to be honest, they probably don't get a lot of requests for this particular play because they've created more like reading editions. Sure. And there is the David Wiley version from 2010. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's in the public domain, but I but don't take my word for that. Yeah, something to look into. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I would imagine that if Mr. Wiley is out there, he would appreciate at least acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, the rights are public domain. And if it was me personally doing it, I would be cool with the 1923 version. Yeah. Especially since you can get printed scripts from Samuel French. Mm-hmm. Other than that, if you're interested in the other translations, you can, of course, do that through interlibrary loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll get it. They'll get you just about everything you want. It's a really great system. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is all that we have for now. Thank you all for joining us for RUR. Next up is The Holdup by Martian Norman, and we hope you'll join us for that one, too. Until then, you can find us on Twitter at The Play Readers. Our intro and outro music is Delightful D by Kevin McLeod. His info and a link to his website is in our show notes if you want to check it out. As always, don't forget to read the stage directions. Mm-hmm.